Hey everyone, uh, let's skip the intro. Okay, and so I keep saying I want to kind of move away from politics and get back to talking about religion, etc. And yet here I am about to wade into the whole cancel culture thing. Oh boy. <laughs> if it's a consolation, next week I'm planning on doing a review of or offering a response to the Netflix series Surviving Death. It's all about near-death experiences, alleged psychic mediums, all that kind of crap. But the reason why I've decided to talk about these quote-unquote cancellation stories, other than the fact that I must be a masochist on some level, is that I'm uh, both a fan of The Mandalorian, I'm also a longtime Marilyn Manson fan. So I thought it might be interesting to just try to offer a measured take on both situations. I guess I'll start with the Gina Carano situation, since that's the one that everyone's talking about at the moment, and hopefully it will still be relevant by the time I get this episode episode out. But as I was just saying, I'm a fan of the Disney Plus series The Mandalorian. I've raved about it, in fairness also nitpicked it a little, multiple times on the show. But in general, I love it, and I've even referred to it as one of my favorite TV shows of all time. And so one of the stars of the show is Gina Carano, an actress and former MMA fighter who plays or played a character called Cara Dune, this kind of tough, badass rebel soldier, or maybe I should say former rebel soldier. The show takes place after the fall of the Empire. She's not in every episode, but she's in the show enough to be considered one of the stars. And it's probably safe to say that fans consider her a quote-unquote main character, or at least a kind of fan favorite. And it's sad, but it seems like politics ends up creeping into everything lately, and The Mandalorian is no exception. So you have two popular stars on the same show, uh, Pedro Pascal in the titular role of The Mandalorian, and once again Gina Carano as Cara Dune. And that always makes me think of Lorna Dune, but that's the cookie lady, right? Uh, anyway, like I was saying, you have two stars from the same show who are both rather politically outspoken, very active on social media, uh, Gina Carano leaning right, Pedro Pascal leaning left. Gina Carano has been embraced by the kind of right-leaning anti-political correctness crowd, while Pedro Pascal has become something of a darling on the left. I don't say the word darling often in real life. Uh, and I've, I've never been one of those people who tell celebrities that they should just shut up and act, you know, when they publicly voice their political opinions. Quite the contrary. I usually get offended for them and think, hey, they're people too. They have just as much a right to self-expression as anyone else. But I have to admit that in this case, even I'm kind of like, come on, guys, can I just have my Star Wars show? What's with all this political social media shit? Pardon my language. I'm kind of thinking to myself, if I was a wealthy celebrity, I could think of so many better uses for my time than being on Twitter. Uh, I'm the opposite of rich. Uh, you know, with a podcast, I should probably be promoting, and I can't be bothered to spend too much time on there. To me, Twitter is like one giant fart-sniffing contest. And I hate the word fart, but I just said it. I think it does have some positive uses, like there's friends and listeners who will use the platform to get in touch with me via DM. And I know in the past it's helped give a voice to people who live, you know, under oppressive regimes or help spread awareness for important causes. 
uh, you know, like pressuring governments to release political prisoners, that sort of thing. But in general, it, it seems like it's just people trying to see how clever they can be in 280 characters or less, or petty bickering, people trying to roast or one-up one another. Um, Twitter could get swallowed up by a black hole tomorrow. Well, I don't know how a website would get sucked into a black hole, but you get my point, and, and I wouldn't care. I'd miss talking to Crocoduck, but he could always email me. And I know not everyone has a podcast, although sometimes it kind of seems that way. Uh, but if I have something to say, I'd rather say it on the show where I can express myself more thoughtfully and thoroughly and bring some nuance instead of trying to distill everything down into one pithy little statement or sentiment. You know, that's restricted by a character limit and can be misconstrued or come off as myopic or pompous or snarky. Uh, but Gina Carano and Pedro Pascal, on the other hand, they do seem to enjoy frequenting Twitter as well as other social media platforms, at least in Gina's case. I believe it was technically an Instagram post that served as the kind of final nail in the proverbial coffin regarding her employment with Disney. And it might actually be a good thing that, as usual of late, I'm slow getting the show out. Uh, because it's now Monday the 22nd, and uh, yesterday morning, Ben Shapiro released a roughly uh, hour-long video interview with Gina Carano. And she offers her take on the various social media posts that kind of got her in trouble. Uh, so in the spirit of fairness, I think it will be good to be able to factor in her kind of explanations for why she posted those. And I guess I might as well run through those now. So back around September, in response to feeling pressured to include pronouns in her Twitter bio, she added three words. Boop, bop, beep. And despite my support of the gay and trans communities, etc., I remember laughing just because it struck me as silly or absurd. And I still don't know if this is what it was meant to evoke. Uh, but the first thing that came to mind for me was R2-D2, boop, beep, bop. Uh, she's on a Star Wars show or was on a Star Wars show. Uh, so I don't know if there's a connection there. Uh, but I guess whether or not you find this offensive depends on how seriously you take the whole pronoun thing or how much importance you place on it. And I believe Pedro Pascal does have pronouns in his Twitter bio. And I believe he also has a trans sister, which might explain in part why he feels so strongly about these issues. Uh, I myself, um, I, I don't do the whole pronoun thing, meaning I don't put them in my bio or anything. I don't have anything against people who do, and I understand and appreciate the sentiment. I'm just not a bandwagon guy. I've kind of got a rebellious streak and I like doing things my own way. Uh, but Gina received some backlash for the boop beep bop thing. I uh, don't know if I put those in the wrong order or whatever. And uh, she posted in response, and I'm paraphrasing, that she had spoken with Pedro Pascal and he had explained to her or helped her to understand the importance of the whole pronoun thing. Given how divisive politics can be, uh, I think one thing that's really nice is, and she even mentions this in the uh, Shapiro interview, is that apparently her and Pedro Pascal are still friends. How close? I'm not sure. Uh, but I remember seeing pictures of them palling around on the set of The Mandalorian or at events. And uh, I thought it would be a shame if they allowed political differences to divide them. So I think it's nice that at least, you know, some of that warmth is uh, apparently still there. But she did post another response in the wake of the whole boop beep bop thing. 
And uh, there's an embedded picture of R2 here, so I guess that answers that question. But she says, Beep Bop Poop. Maybe that should be the drinking game of the week uh, every time I say uh, whatever permutation of beep bop boop has zero to do with mocking trans people. And there's a heart symbol and a hundred percent to do with exposing the bullying mentality of the mob that has taken over the voices of many genuine causes. I want people to know you can take the hate with a smile. So boop you for misunderstanding and it looks like a kind of blushing, smiley face emoticon there. And then it ends, hashtag all love, no hate. And so I'm kind of torn because, yeah, on the one hand, I think it's not good to gang up on and pressure someone to conform and include pronouns in their bio because you think they should, uh, if that's what happened. But on the other hand, it's like, geez, you're a successful star uh, with a lot going for you. Ignore them. Take a break from Twitter or don't waste time scrolling through responses when there's bound to be some that are going to upset you. Uh, I think it's Joe Rogan who always says how he doesn't even bother reading Twitter responses or going through the comments section on his uh, videos because the environment's just too toxic. I think a lot of other content creators feel the same way. Um, you know, you have to, for the sake of your own sanity, learn not to let social media get to you. Probably easier said than done, but you know, as much as possible. And then she also posted or retweeted these kind of anti-mask memes. One shows a picture of a guy with masks wrapped all around his head with the caption, Meanwhile in California. Then there's another one that shows a kind of awkward still of politicians in the process of putting their COVID masks on. But at that, you know, that point where it's over their eyes and it reads... Breaking news, Democratic government leaders now recommends, um, it should probably be recommend, we all wear blindfolds along with masks so we can't see what's really going on. And I believe there was actually one other mask meme that she posted or tweeted. I'm looking at it now. It's broken into four panels, each one showing someone wearing a mask. Uh, three of them show, you know, like a guy wearing a heavy-duty mask or maybe a woman, I don't know. Uh, one says mask for spray paint. One says mask for mining. One says mask for, for asbestos. And then the fourth one shows Dr. Fauci donning a mask. It says mask for the deadliest virus in the history. Not in the history of the world, just in the history. What's with uh, memes and bad grammar? And so... As other people have pointed out, you know, heavy-duty masks that you'd wear around, you know, heavy paint fumes and that kind of thing are to protect you from breathing in foreign particulates, uh, whereas the cloth masks everyone's wearing now because of COVID are meant to help you from spraying out, you know, your spit or <laughs> whatever at, uh, at other people and possibly infecting others, you know? I think her explanation or justification for posting those mask memes was that she felt like she was getting conflicting messages from the government or officials regarding the efficacy of masks, whether they truly help or do more harm than good, that kind of thing. And in fairness, there did seem to be some mixed messages in the beginning. And one thing that really bothered me, you know, we've seen this almost deification of Dr. Anthony Fauci 
But I still remember how he at one point near the beginning of all this downplayed the importance of masks, suggesting they they weren't really necessary, uh, so a lie of sorts. And his reasoning was that he wanted to make sure that civilians or the public didn't buy up all the masks, causing a shortage for medical professionals. I get his concern, but the blatant dishonesty doesn't sit well with me. It's the type of thing that erodes that trust that should exist between health officials or, you know, officials in general and the public. That being said, I really don't get the whole anti-mask thing or the politicization of masks. I work a blue-collar manual labor job. We wear masks at work. The homeowners wear masks. The electricians and plumbers and building inspectors we rub elbows with wear masks. I go grocery shopping. The customers and employees are all wearing masks. And I don't see any politics at work. I see ordinary, everyday people taking a common-sense precaution during a pandemic. And if you go to a hospital or a clinic, they're really serious about masks. Do you think that's political too? Or could it be that these are places staffed by health workers and health professionals who are keenly aware of the dangers posed by a highly contagious pathogen and the basic steps needed to be taken in order to minimize its spread? And so out of everything that she posted, I think that's, you know, the kind of thing that really got under my skin, these anti-mask tweets. I feel like celebrities have some degree of moral responsibility to not spread pseudoscience or downplay basic safety precautions during a pandemic. And I think she responded to this backlash by saying something to the effect uh, that she wears, quote-unquote, their precious masks, you know, wears them to make other people comfortable, etc. Not sure who the, quote-unquote, their refers to in their precious masks, the elites, the leftists, or maybe just the people calling her out on Twitter, I don't know. And then she also posted a tweet pertaining to voter fraud, and so it reads, we need to clean up the election process so we are not left feeling the way we do today. Put laws in place that protect us against voter fraud. Investigate every state, film the counting, flush out the fake votes, require ID, make voter fraud end in 2020, fix the system, American flag uh, emoticon or emoji or whatever. Is a flag technically an emoji? Doesn't even have a face. Uh, anyway, uh, and it was interesting. She was saying in that Shapiro interview that she was never really interested in politics until recently and that this election was her first time voting and that she was surprised by how little verification or ID was required, uh, saying that she basically gave them her name and address and that was it. Uh, welcome to voting. I I've been voting since my 20s, I think. And I remember my first time. I just went to the local high school. The voting took place in the gym. Uh, there were a bunch of booths and banquet tables with workers with clipboards seated at them. You give them your name and street address. Uh, they find you on the list and send you off to a booth. And I think in general, you know, of course it's good to be concerned with voter fraud. Uh, and we should all want a fair and transparent voting process. But when you look at the timing of this tweet and put it in the context of her other posts and her political leanings, it would be understandable to assume that it's echoing the conspiracy theory that the election was stolen from Trump. 
And I think that brings us to the post that may have finally been the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. And as I mentioned earlier, I believe this was technically an Instagram post and not a tweet. And so it shows an old black and white photo of a partially dressed Jewish woman running in terror from, and I forget the proper term, but these kind of deputized civilian Nazi collaborators. And I'm not sure if this first part is her own words or if it's part of the retweet or whatever, uh, or someone else's original post, but says Jews were beaten in the streets, not by Nazi soldiers, but by their neighbors, even by children sad face emoticon. And then there's a quote, because history is edited, most people today don't realize that to get to the point where Nazi soldiers could easily round up thousands of Jews, the government first made their own neighbors hate them simply for being Jews. How is that any different from hating someone for their political views? And I want to offer a quick little correction so I don't have to do it on the next episode. Uh, as I was reading that, I was looking at the embedded photo again. And it actually, at first, I assumed they were uh, guards uh, or, you know, like I said, kind of deputized collaborators. Um, and, and maybe they still are. But the two figures you can see chasing the woman, although there's probably more figures off, you know, camera given the way that uh, the direction the woman's running in. It looks like the two in the photo, though, are children. But it looks like they're carrying the same type of sticks or batons, and they both seem to be wearing some kind of, you know, visored cap or something. So I don't know if they're little kids who are kind of deputized or whatever. I'm not sure. And I didn't include this point in my notes, but it's jumping out at me now. So whoever this quote is coming from, they're saying that because history is edited, people don't really know or realize that the Nazis had to get people to hate their neighbors or whatever. Uh, I think it's pretty well known that the Nazis were kind of uh, exploiting or inflaming this kind of festering anti-Semitism that had been around for centuries. There's a long and disturbing tradition of virulent anti-Semitism throughout medieval history. You know, you have uh, pogroms and diasporas, all sorts of kind of slanderous and vulgar beliefs. Uh, like blood libel and Jewish people, you know, eating or drinking the blood of Christian babies, poisoning wells, that kind of thing. But to get back to that post, so people read this as her comparing the treatment of Republicans or Trump supporters to the treatment of Jews in Nazi Germany, which would definitely be outrageous. Uh, even before I saw the Shapiro interview, I thought I'd extend what you fancy, you know, philosophical types refer to as the principle of charity, you know, to her hair. If she's trying to say that in general, whatever side you're on, we need to look beyond our political and ideological differences and see each other first and foremost as human beings and not try to quote unquote other or dehumanize each other. Then I'm in full agreement, 100%. And that's pretty much what she claims in that Shapiro interview. And I don't mean this as an insult. Uh, in a way, it might be a partial explanation for her posts. But she strikes me as someone who's kind of naive when it comes to politics. And like she says, she didn't even become interested in politics, you know, till recently. 
And that doesn't excuse, you know, the mask tweets, etc. But I think there is a certain degree of naivety at work there. And there was one other Twitter post that may have been released roughly around the same time as that Instagram post. It depicts a bunch of old men sitting around a table, like this meeting of powerful elites. Oh yeah, and I'm looking at again right now, the table is actually a Monopoly board, and it's supported on the backs of a bunch of slaves or oppressed figures or whatever. And uh, the caption says, all we have to do is stand up and their little game is over. And it's hard not to look at it and think, you know, conspiracy theory, the New World Order, Zionist cabals, etc. And Ben Shapiro brought it up during the interview. And I guess he was saying that the image is an edited version of an older image that is, you know, blatantly anti-Semitic. In the original image, supposedly, the old men, you know, characters have much more prominent and exaggerated facial features like Jewish stereotypes you'd see in old Nazi propaganda posters or whatever. Uh, but supposedly, Karana was unaware of the anti-Semitic roots of the image. I think the Instagram post featuring that World War II analogy or comparison, perhaps together with that post with what I'll call Zionist imagery, seemed to be what brought everything to a head. The hashtag Fire Gina Carano began gaining steam on social media, and she admits that she thinks the higher-ups at Disney were looking to get rid of her for a while, and they finally did. They fired her. And I think she said that she found out that she was fired through social media, no one-on-one -on -one conversation or in-person meeting or anything, which is pretty cold. And I was going to mention... Uh, kind of darkly joking. That's weird, but everyone involved seems to have had like a bad concentration camp taken away. Gina Carano had that Instagram post. Pedro Pascal had a tweet juxtaposing a picture of migrant children in a Trump detainment camp with a black and white photo from World War II of children in a Nazi camp. The black and white photo captioned Germany 1944 and the other captioned America 2018. The only problem the photo inaccurately labeled America 2018 is actually an image of a bunch of Palestinian children. And then Disney has been criticized for shooting Milan in a Chinese province where there's detention camps housing about one million detainees, mostly Muslim Uyghurs, and there's been accusations of serious human rights violations there. And in the credits for that live-action version of Mulan, Disney thanks a Chinese security agency from that province, so not a good look. Makes it a little harder for them to try and claim any kind of moral high ground. So do I think they should have fired her? To be honest, when I kind of search my feelings, is that an uh, unintentional Star Wars reference? I actually don't have any strong feelings either way, and that might piss some people off. But it's the truth. On the one hand, I do like her on The Mandalorian, but on the other, I think a private company has a right to hire or fire, you know, whoever they want. And the feeling I get after having watched that interview she did with Shapiro is that, uh, as I think I was saying earlier, in her mind, she thought the writing was on the wall and she felt like they had wanted her gone for a while. And I think paraphrasing her, she figured, why not go down swinging? And so maybe that's why she kept pushing things, because I was trying to figure out why in the world, if you wanted to keep your job, would you keep posting all this kind of controversial political stuff? And in fairness, uh, you know, as some have pointed out, there seems to be this apparent double standard 
where her political social media posts seem to put her on thin ice with the brass, while Pedro Pascal, on the other hand, doesn't seem to face any consequences for his political posts. And there could be a couple of reasons for this, or maybe it's probably, you know, a combination of things. On the one hand, a lot of the Disney slash Lucasfilm brass, like Kathleen Kennedy, probably do lean left, so they're, they're just more ideologically aligned with Pedro Pascal's worldview. So there probably is an actual bias in that sense. And uh, like so much in life, it probably just comes down to money as well. They probably think the political winds happen to be blowing left, and thusly someone who keeps posting right-leaning stuff is potentially a liability. Not saying it's fair, but I imagine it's something to that effect. But I wonder if in a sense it might be a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Because supposedly there was talk of her starring in a spin-off, uh, The Rangers of the New Republic, so it seems like at least some people at Disney or Lucasfilm, I'm sure John Favreau among them, had plans to keep her around. But then she keeps posting all this stuff, the anti-masker stuff, etc. And these posts were even, you know, if her intent was misconstrued, nevertheless came across as loaded or controversial. And she just kind of ended up shooting herself in the foot and losing her gig with Disney slash Lucasfilm. And man, so it looks like this is going to be a long one because I'm just now moving on to Marilyn Manson. And so this story didn't really come as a surprise to me because I'd been watching one of TJ Kirk, a.k.a. The Amazing Atheist, live streams about a month ago or so. And TJ's also a Manson fan. And he mentioned how Evan Rachel Wood had come forward and talked about uh, abuse she had suffered in the past at the hands of a significant other. And this is always a tough topic, but she said she had been sexually assaulted, raped, twice in her life, once by the aforementioned significant other or domestic partner. She had even testified before the United States House Judiciary Subcommittee on Crime, Terrorism, Homeland Security, and Investigations, that was a mouthful, uh, in support of a sexual assault survivor's bill back in 2018, and then also before the California Senate in 2019 to help pass the Phoenix Act, which would help extend the statute of limitations in domestic assault abuse cases. And whenever I have to say statute of limitations, I always hope that it doesn't come across as statue of limitations. And uh, that reminds me of that Seinfeld episode anyway. I guess people have been speculating for a while that the person in question was Manson. And then earlier this month, February of 2021, she finally came forward and actually named Manson as the abusive partner she had been anonymously referencing uh, or alluding to. The two had been together from 2006 to 2010. After she came forward, about four or five other women came forward as well. I believe both Dita Von Tees and Rose McGowan said their relationships with Manson weren't abusive, uh, but I think uh, both of those relationships were negatively impacted by Manson's substance abuse, at the least. Uh, I'm not sure if he cheated on Rose McGowan or not, but I believe infidelity on his part was a part of the reason why he and Dita Von Tees eventually divorced. Uh, but as for Evan Rachel Wood's allegations, I'll read this excerpt from a recent Vanity Fair article. Wood, now 33 and a star of HBO's Westworld, has said that she met shock rocker Manson when she was 18 and he was 36. In 2018, Wood testified before a House Judiciary Subcommittee as part of an effort to get the Sexual Assault Survivors Bill of Rights passed in all 50 states. And here's a quote. My experience with domestic violence was this. 
toxic mental, physical, and sexual abuse which started slow but escalated over time, including threats against my life, severe gaslighting and brainwashing, waking up to the man that claimed to love me, raping what he believed to be my unconscious body, she told the subcommittee, though she did not name a perpetrator at the time. And once again, apologies for the kind of, you know, the strong, disturbing uh, subject matter. And there was one other story from another woman that really stuck with me. She alleges that when she was a young stylist or makeup artist just starting out, she got a gig that required her to go to Manson's place, I guess. And when she got there, the woman she was supposed to be performing the makeup job on or styling uh, appeared to be really drugged out or intoxicated to the point of stumbling around. So she started to go towards her to help her or check on her. And she claims that at that point, Manson pulled a gun on her. And so this is from People magazine. Bailey told the Daily Beast in an interview published Tuesday that the alleged incident occurred back in 2011 after she arrived at the home of Manson, real name Brian Warner, to style an actress for a photo shoot. When she went into the room to dress the actress, whom Bailey did not name, Bailey noticed her stumbling and seemingly disoriented, the Daily Beast reports. I had to crawl over stained sheets to get to her, and as I did so, he put a big glock to my forehead, Bailey told the outlet of Manson 52. I remember thinking, oh my god, am I going to die? Bailey said she felt powerless, stunned, and shocked to be at the end of the gun's barrel, adding, I was in this state where I was asking myself, isn't he too famous to kill me? I remember all these thoughts flashing through my head. Here I was, this young 20-year-old stylist just trying to get the job done, and I was met with a Glock, she added. And there was something else from that Vanity Fair article I wanted to read. Some of Manson's old comments have been coming back to bite him, so I'll read this bit. In 2009, in an article in Spin, Manson was quoted as saying of Wood, I have fantasies every day about smashing her skull in with a sledgehammer. Last year, when that comment was brought up by a music journalist, a representative from Manson noted that the comment was, in quotes, obviously a theatrical rock star interview promoting a new record and not a factual account. Wood and Manson were engaged in 2010 before breaking up. And I think it may have been in that same interview or around that same time that Manson also claims to have been so obsessed with Rachel Evan Wood that he called her 155 times in one day and supposedly cut himself each time he called. So I'm no math genius, but if true, cut himself 155 times. So if it's true, that makes, that makes me feel sorry and concerned for both parties. Can you imagine being so messed up and obsessed with someone that you would call them 155 times in one day and cut yourself each time? And then can you imagine how awful it must feel to, you know, have someone so obsessed with you that they would call 155 times in one day? And I feel bad if I, like, try to contact someone, don't hear back for a week or two, so then try again 155 times in one day. God damn. And so, and so before I get into what I really think about all this and how it does or doesn't change my view of Manson, I guess I'll go into what it is I like about Manson in the first place. 
So I have a pretty eclectic taste in music. I like everything from folk and classical to alternative music, hard rock, alt-rock, punk, metal. But I've always been drawn to dark music. Growing up, my older siblings got me into stuff like Black Sabbath, Iron Maiden, that kind of thing. When I got a little older, I got into Danzig, The Misfits, industrial stuff like Nine Inch Nails, Ministry, etc. So I feel like I was kind of primed to like Manson. And speaking of Nine Inch Nails, there's a Manson connection there. Once upon a time, uh, Trent Reznor and Manson were actually friends. Manson's band caught the attention of Reznor, and he actually produced their first two albums, Portrait of an American Family and Antichrist Superstar, I believe. I still think Antichrist Superstar is one of the best albums in rock history. But Manson and Trent Reznor had a falling out, and Reznor actually got kind of caught up a bit in this whole Manson scandal. In his autobiography, Long Hard Road Out of Hell, uh, Manson recounts the story of how he and Reznor supposedly took advantage of a groupie. I've never read his autobiography. I remember looking for it on Amazon some years back, but having trouble finding a copy, so I just kind of gave up. But I did track down the excerpt in question online, and I'm pretty jaded and don't get offended or grossed out easily. Um, but even, you know, even I was bothered by this. It bothered me in a couple of ways. I felt bad for the girl, and I was also just grossed out by the uh, graphic details. He details how he and Trent supposedly use this old trick where you give the other person a glass of tequila while only pouring a beer for yourself but leading them to think you're also drinking tequila. That way they get drunker faster and you can take advantage of them. And he goes into graphic detail about what they did with the girl while she was passed out, probing her body, burning her pubic hair, etc. I was almost going to read it, but it's pretty vile. Reznor offered the following response to this story after it recently resurfaced. I've been vocal over the years about my dislike of Manson as a person and cut ties with him nearly 25 years ago. As I said at the time, the passage from Manson's memoir is a complete fabrication. I was infuriated and offended back when it came out and remains so today. So at this point, you're probably saying, what the hell do you like about this guy? Well, it should go without saying that I don't condone any kind of abuse or assault. And if someone physically abuses someone, sexually assaults someone, puts the barrel of a gun to an innocent person's head, they deserve to be punished and held accountable whether I like their music or not. So I'm not trying to excuse Manson of any wrongdoing he may have done. I'm merely trying to give you some insight into what drew me to him and his music in the first place. So as I was saying, I was someone who grew up listening to dark, heavy metal music, etc. As a singer and a lyricist myself, whose stuff is pretty dark, Manson just really appealed to me from the get-go. I think like a lot of people, the first thing I ever heard by him was probably either his uh, or their cover of the Eurythmic Sweet Dreams, or maybe it was The Beautiful People. But I remember the guys in my band and I listening to Antichrist Superstar and thinking it was an amazing album. I loved the dark tone of the music, I loved his voice, loved his aesthetic, uh, thought the music videos were amazing, the dark, unsettling, kind of nightmarishly surreal imagery seemed to go perfectly with the music. 
And speaking of his aesthetic, you know, the kind of jet black hair and morbid or kind of gothy uh, appearance, etc. There's this kind of pet peeve I have. I remember a long time ago, I did a response video because Jenk from the Young Turks was ripping on Manson, calling him a phony or saying, uh, you know, it was all an act or whatever. And then when this recent this scandal recently broke, I was watching a Cult of Dusty live stream and Dusty brought up the assault or abuse allegations and basically accused Manson of cause playing and, you know, um, characterizing his look as just a money-making gimmick or something like that. Uh, I'm paraphrasing, but that was the spirit of it. And there's this kind of casual confidence that people have when they make these kind of, you know, characterizations as if they're certain it's all an act. And as someone myself who once again sings, writes lyrics, has a dark side that they express through their art, I think it demonstrates a kind of ignorance or misunderstanding of how certain, you know, artists express themselves. Is there a theatrical element? Does the aesthetic make for good theater or spectacle? Sure, but that doesn't mean that it's inauthentic. Uh, the outward appearance is a reflection, for better or worse, of what's on the inside. You can say what you want about Manson, but I personally think he's sincere. His lyrics are dark and often disturbing, but they're also deeply personal. Have you seen the guy's paintings, how he lives, the stuff he collects? I don't think the guy goes home after a show and changes into a polo shirt and dockers. I think essentially Brian Hugh Warner and Marilyn Manson are one and the same. But in a sense, there are two Mansons, or at least two sides to his personality. If you're a fan who knows something about all the feuding and the drama he's been embroiled in over the years, if you've seen the backstage footage of him lashing out or losing his cool, then you'll know he does have a kind of petulant, overly temperamental, I would say even an emotionally immature side. And to be honest, that's a side of Manson that I've always found off-putting. On the other hand, there's a side of him that often comes through in interviews that's very charming, articulate, and thoughtful. He even has this very kind of laid-back, quirky sense of humor that I love. And I'd always hoped that that was kind of Manson's default mode or baseline personality. And I liked the idea that he had all this darkness in him that he expressed through his music and his art, but that otherwise he was this charming, good-natured guy. But sadly, it looks like he may not be in control of his demons after all, and that he may have taken that inner darkness out on other people. Yeah, so it sucks. It looks like this person I admired, if the allegations are true, may have done everything from pointing a gun, you know, at a makeup artist or stylist's head, to penetrating people who were passed out. So obviously horrible, inexcusable stuff. I remember when I first started hearing people talking about canceling Marilyn Manson, I kind of thought to myself, is it even possible to cancel Manson? He's famous for being dark and disturbing, and his whole persona is kind of like a middle finger to the world. How do you damage the reputation of someone like that? But apparently you can cancel Marilyn Manson, at least partially. I watched the TV series American Gods. I was surprised when I realized Manson had a reoccurring part in season, uh, what are we on now? Season three, I think? Season two or season three? I think three. He plays this rock or heavy metal musician, appropriately enough, who worships or serves the Odin character, aka Mr. Wednesday, portrayed by Ian McShane. And I guess he had a part in the modern reboot of Creepshow, but... He was dropped from that, too. A label he works with, Loma Vista, or Loma Vista, I think it is, that distributes his music dropped him. And I believe his longtime booking agent dropped him as well. Um, 
But I guess the million dollar question is, will I continue to listen to his music? Well, this is a weird one, isn't it? I'm not sure if it's logical or not, but if you find an artist, musician, actor, or whatever you like, you know, find out they did something heinous, there's almost this concern or feeling that by consuming or enjoying their art, you're somehow complicit or condoning or excusing their wrongdoing or something, you know, like that. But on the other hand, there's a lot of artists who have done awful stuff whose work people still regularly enjoy. For instance, I really like the Beatles and John Lennon's solo work as well. And I remember being really disturbed when I found out that uh, Lennon had been physically violent towards women. And I know if you have never heard about this before, you'll probably be like, what? But yeah, it's pretty much public knowledge that he had been physically abusive towards his wife uh, before Yoko Ono, Cynthia Lennon. And he had said that uh, the song Getting Better was kind of about him changing his ways. And here's a quote. I used to be cruel to my woman, and physically, any woman. I was a hitter. I couldn't express myself, and I hit. I fought men, and I hit women. That is why I'm always on about peace. So yeah, if you're a Lennon or Beatles fan, it's definitely disturbing. And then there's Roman Polanski. I think what he did with an underage girl was vile, but probably won't stop me from watching Rosemary's Baby again every now and then. And I think actually, didn't they actually use a Gary Glitter song uh, now that I think about it in the movie Joker? And, and so the list probably goes on and on. So the short answer is no, I probably won't stop listening to Manson. But I'll definitely view him differently from now on. And I guess with that, I'll call this episode a wrap. So you guys know the drill. You can like the Facebook page. You can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. You can follow me on Twitter, even though it probably sounds like I hate Twitter. But I still post the links to the most recent episodes, etc. there. Um, if you want to support the show monetarily, you can go to patreon.com slash theweekendout and help support what I do here for as little as 99 cents a month. All right, brothers and sisters, until next time.